Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. He has years of experience as a pastor, seminary instructor, and more. Later, you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. But we're beginning a study on church history. Our Baptist history in particular, we're going to be talking about something that's known as the Trail of Blood. And I have a few elementary things that we've got to understand in our study of this. And they're all taken from the Word of God. I want to begin in Matthew chapter 16 and beginning in verse 18. Because it says, And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Let's look at that for just a moment. Sometimes we have a different idea about Peter. Some people have maybe a misconception about Peter. But what does the Greek say? What did Jesus exactly say? That's what we want to know. What exactly did Jesus say? Well, he's saying, you're Peter. You are a small stone. You are a pebble. But upon this Petra, this major rock, and Jesus is referring to himself, the stone of our salvation, our very salvation in thought here, that I will build my church, Jesus saying, I'm going to build my church upon myself, and the gates of Hades, some versions say the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. All that Satan can do, nothing is going to work to fight against the Lord's church. They shall not prevail against it. In other words, the church is going to continue on. Jesus established it. He set it up. And we're going to be talking more about that. But that's why, because it was done by the Lord, nothing is going to be able to stop it, uh, withhold it. So we hold to something that we call church perpetuity. In other words, that the Lord's churches would continue on from time past to very present. All right, let me read another verse found in Matthew chapter 28. And I want to begin reading in verse 16. However, 19 is really my key verse. 19 and 20 is where we want to go. But I want to give you the context. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Some versions say even to the end of the world. Well, how long is the end of this age? How long is this world? Until Christ returns. So he is saying to his church, to those disciples, he's saying, 
this is your commission. This is your job. This is what I want you to do. Go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them the all things. And I will be with you always. Was it going to go out of existence? What does it mean that I'm with you always? It means exactly what it says. Always. Even to the end of the age. Let that sink in. Just consider that. Because that's exactly what Christ is saying. To the end of this age, it's going to continue. So, let me read one more. And it's found in the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul writing to the church that was at Ephesus. And let me read this in chapter 3, verse 21. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now that's another promise that the Lord's churches were going to go on. Because what's the subject? The subject is the church. To him be glory. In other words, to Christ. He's going to receive glory through his church. And what's he saying was going to go through all generations? Well, of course, Jesus is going to be through all generations. But he's talking about his church here in an institutional sense. Just like we say, a school, I'm going to school, I'm going to the, be in the hospital. We know that it's speaking in an institutional sense. And I'll talk about that later on. But he says, to all generations, forever and ever, amen. So that's what he means. It's exactly what he's telling us. But what is a church? I think that's an important thought. It's an important concept. Many say that the New Testament church was established when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came and empowered the church. I don't believe that. I believe that Christ established his church. He established it right there in Jerusalem with those early disciples. And let me tell you why I believe that. Foremost, the word that is translated in our English Bible is church is from the Greek word ekklesia. And in Spanish, it's very close to that, the iglesia. It's come from that Greek word that's a compound word from ek, out, and kaleo, to call. So a church is a called out group, a called out assembly. And we understand that they've covenanted together to carry out the Great Commission that we just read in Matthew 28. Well, that's what Jesus did when he walked on the seashore of Galilee. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. And I'm reading from Matthew chapter 4, 18. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So there we have the beginning of the Lord's New Testament church. Now these people had already seen Jesus. They had been with John the Baptist when John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They had already been there. They had seen, they knew who Jesus was and who he was to be. Well, by understanding that and seeing and recognizing those things, we 
are able to see that's what Jesus did. He called them out. They had seen him. They heard that he was Messiah. They heard that this was the coming one, the promised one. And now they begin to follow him for three and a half years. They follow him. And of course, they follow him their whole lives. A foremost view in their lifestyle from this time on. He changes their very lives. Well, it's interesting because from the seashore of Galilee, then Jesus goes in the book of Matthew, talks about then the Beatitudes in chapter 5 and chapter 6, chapter 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is really establishing his church right there. He's, he's setting up something so that they will be different. Not like the Pharisees, not like the hypocrites in Jesus' day, but that they would live their life that would give honor and glory to Christ, that would give honor and glory to God. And so he set it up and established, and then he calls and he sets 12 in their midst, 12 to be apostles. But think about what a church does. Some of the ordinances of the church, baptism. Then we get over a little farther in the book of Matthew and in the other gospels, we see that Jesus didn't do the baptizing himself, but his disciples did, and they baptized more disciples than John. So one of the things that the New Testament church did was they practiced baptism. And then we know on the night that Jesus was betrayed, prior to his crucifixion, and prior to Judas betraying him and leaving, or I, I should say Judas had left, and went to betray Jesus, and then he established the Lord's Supper. Some call it communion or the Lord's table. Whatever you call it, it's the same thing. We're talking about the very same thing. And so we see that Jesus has established an ordinance of baptism. He's established the ordinance of the Lord's Supper within the church, and they were to carry those things out and remember it as often as they do this. They were to remember the Lord's death, his broken body, his shed blood, until he would come again and take it with you anew in the kingdom. So there's something about the Lord's church that's going to be even into the other ages that are yet to come. So that's what a church is. Hi, give me a moment to update you with a bit of information. You can reach us now at schoolofministryresources.org org or biblelandmarks.com you can also reach us at p.o box 837 valley springs california 95252 please contact us with comments questions or to receive handouts and printed material we look forward to hearing from you now back to the podcast you remember that judas iscariot was the treasurer for the church he carried the purse he had the money that's how we knew that he was a thief, because he was taking of the church's money. So prior to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, we have a names of about 120 that had met there. Now we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after the resurrection of Jesus, there were above 500 that saw Jesus in his resurrected body at one time. So maybe these were all disciples and part of that early church. In Acts chapter 2, we find the giving of the Holy Spirit to take Jesus' place. He's come now in a new office, in a new particular place, the office of the Comforter. And he is 
that Paracletos, the one who would walk beside them in all of those ways. So that's what the Holy Spirit has done. And some mistake the empowering of the church for the establishing of the church, and they're two different things. The establishing of the church was done early in Jesus' public ministry. And they went with him, and they learned, and they walked with him, and they established and did all the things that they needed to do. By the way, in Acts chapter 1, you find the church is conducting business. They have a vote of someone to take Judas Iscariot's place. And of course, the vote lands on Mattathias. Now I'd like to speak to you a little bit about why did we get the name that we do? Why are we called Christians? Why are we called Baptists? And some of those things. We're going to talk about that throughout this class. We're going to see where all of the various names have come from. But originally, the first Christians were called those of the way, or just simply the way. When you look in the book of Acts, you will find that Paul is out as Saul of Tarsus, and he is persecuting the church. He's out attacking the church. And of course, in this, he is looking for any of those of the way. And when you read that, you'll see that it's in capital in your Bible. The reason for that is because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they were coming specifically saying, we're of Christ. We're of following the way. We're following hodos. And that's what Jesus said. I am the way. And they were following after the way. They were on that path. They were on going down that road. That's exactly what he is explaining there. They wanted to be known as those of the way. And then finally, later, there is church that was established in Antioch. Their lifestyles were such that the enemies of Christ began to call them Christians, for they were Christ-like. They were like Jesus. And what a wonderful thing to be called, because you are so much like Jesus. You are little Christ. You're following in the ways that Jesus did that they would call you a child of, they would call you a Christian, a little Christ, a little Christ follower. And originally that was a term of derision. They were making fun of those people, but they wore the name proudly. They said, yes, we are following Christ. Yes, we do live like him. Yes, we're not like the rest of the world. And so they were called Christians first in Antioch. Now later we're going to find that our Baptist forefathers went from those names, and sometimes it became illegal to be called by the name Christian. Others that said that, oh no, we're the true church. We're holding to this. And they said, you can't be called Christian. And it's interesting because sometimes they were called by some of the famous pastors that were in their work or some of the leading preachers around. They were called the names like Montanist, Novationist, Puritans, they were called Cathari, which means Puritan, pure. They were called Donatist. Later, we're going to see the Paulicians. What a great group they were that were mainly around modern-day Armenia. There were the Waldenses. They were called Anabaptist. And they were called Anabaptist because they were known as rebaptizers. Some had come on the scene and begun to practice infant baptism, and therefore the Lord's churches never accepted that. 
And so they were saying, oh yeah, you are those Anabaptists. You're those rebaptizers. And so we have many, many different names. And we're going to look at them, the Arnoldists, the Albigenses, all throughout the ages of which our Baptist forefathers were called. And then they were called Anabaptists again, even up until uh, some few hundred years ago. And there are some groups that have come from us that still are call themselves Anabaptists. Well, it's interesting because we've seen that Jesus organized his church. He established it. Our lives as a child of God ought to be different so that people see there's something different. We don't just go by the name of Christ. We live for Christ. And that's what all of our forefathers have always held to. They lived for Christ. They lived out that example. They were always pure. There's some things that you find that every one of these groups, they practice and purity of their life was always foremost. You see that when groups began to allow immorality or impurities, that's what the doctrine of the deeds of the Nicolaitans, when you read in the book of Revelation, it talks about the Nicolaitans. And that's what they taught was that, well, you don't have to be pure. You don't have to be godly in your life. You can live any way. You live just like the world, but then you come to church and you put on the face of a Christian. Well, that modernistic idea is still alive and well today that Christianity shouldn't change your life. But how sad. How sad. Well, that was the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Just live like the world. You can do whatever you want, but then on Sunday, look like the church, look like you're a Christian. Well, we're going to be talking a lot about different things from the trail of blood. We're going to be talking about how irregular churches began to crop up, even in the times that the Bible was being written. You know, there were Gnostics that said that they knew. The idea of the Gnostic was also that they had a better knowledge, a higher knowledge, and things that were material were evil, and things that were spiritual were good. And they used that to get away with saying, well, we can live any way we want because it's physical, and that was our excuse. Whatever is physical is evil. It's evil anyway, so only uh, the higher knowledge, the spiritual knowledge, those things, only that's going to last. We're going to look at all kinds of different groups, all kinds of different ideas, that have crept into the New Testament churches, but we want to see that there has been a continual history, just as the Word of God promised, the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it, just as the Word of God promised that I'll be with you even to the end of this world, just as He promised that He would receive glory through all ages, that Christ established His church, that it wouldn't go out of existence, these are some important things because they are based through the Word of God. And then we see that history backs up. We don't need history to back up the Word of God. We believe it no matter what. But it's nice that we have the history that shows all of those things. My background, being raised at the Roman Catholic Church, I was very skeptical. I was taught, oh, only the Roman Catholic is the true church that came through the ages. And so when I began to be tested in some of these things, you know what I did was I went back to my old high school. 
I got permission to go into the library and I began to pick up and read things like from the Catholic Encyclopedia to see if some of these things were true, and they are. And I'm going to give you places where you can go and you can easily check all of these things. You can check them online. They're easily accessible nowadays to see that all of the things that I'm going to tell you, and I'll give you lots of different books, I'll try to uh, put that information in so that you can verify. You don't have to take my word. You can verify and see what the history says yourself. Thanks. It's an interesting study. It's a wonderful study. It's a horrible study because we're going to see from the time of the early disciples, the apostles, you know, every apostle died as a martyr except for John, who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Not a great way to live, living in a little cave with a rock as your pillow. And they did try to kill John before. They tried boiling him in oil, but he survived that. And so then they send him out to the Isle of Patmos, and he's exiled. And of course there, the Holy Spirit uses him to write the book of Revelation. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. If you want to hear Paul in person and are in the Stockton, California area, we invite you to join us at Landmark Missionary Baptist Church, 301 East Alpine Avenue. That's near the University of the Pacific. He brings the Bible message every Sunday at 11 a.m. and other times as listed. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.